It's time for From the Bench with Dench with your studio host, Denny Rittenhouse. Good evening. Welcome to another edition of From the Bench with Dench. Uh, your host, Denny Dench Rittenhouse here. And uh, this evening, first of all, thanks for everyone for tuning in last week on our inaugural episode, a little Super Bowl banter. Uh, had a lot of fun with that with our guests, uh, Tori Roots and Justin Rittenhouse and uh, myself and kicking back to the Super Bowl and I'm happy to report I picked the winner right and I picked the stars of the games uh, 100% accurate so pat on my back for me um, and I uh, hope you enjoyed the uh, the game itself it was an entertaining uh, game regardless of what you think of Stan Kroenke and uh, uh, I don't think too much of him <laughs> myself but but I am a, a fan of a few of the players that, that the Rams had and, uh, uh, correctly predicted the outcome. I'll brag about that because I rarely do it. Um, so, uh, but we're going to change course a little bit here this week. And um, in the studio is a fascinating individual, record collector Jim Ronnett. And Jim, I pronounced that right, I hope. That's I fine, know. yeah. That's the German pronunciation is Ronit. Yeah. My family is French, and they say Rone sometimes. Yeah. So it's Rone. back and forth between yeah. Rone and Ronit. Yeah. <laughs> we'll Americanize it for, for my lazy tongue. So, okay. So, so, there. Uh, so Jim, what makes Jim fascinating in, in my mind, and I, I think you'll agree as we go along here, is um, his love for music and um, um, a passion I share myself. And... Uh, uh, I, I satisfy that mainly by going to live music and uh, concerts and stuff like that, listening to a lot of radio. Um, uh, this guy took it to another level when it comes to uh, uh, satisfying that passion. Jim's a record collector, as we said, and uh, um, to say you have one or two records in your collection would be a, a severe <laughs> understatement, wouldn't it, Jim? Yeah, when you go to counting how many, it kind of scares myself. And, and over the years, my house keeps getting growing and growing. I've added on to the house just for the collection. So uh, I really don't have pers exact numbers of how many I have, but it's it grows weekly. <laughs> yeah, having uh, gotten a tour of the, um, really, a museum, uh, of what you got there, it's it's well into the thousands, um, well over fifty thousand, I would surmise, yeah. as far as the number of forty fives, and so, so and it's not just records you collect. You you um, like the things associated with it too, the stories behind them and stuff, uh, right. uh, photographs and mm -hmm. uh, um, tour programs and yeah, uh, advertising that advertises shows and where they promote promoting people at, and uh, from record labels, I like the advertising from different record labels that they put out on the artist, and that's always interesting. And, and so we, uh, you, you amass this, and we'll get into how that all came about, but uh, uh, today you still attend conventions and, and record collection uh, uh, get-togethers and stuff um, um, to, to still add to the collection. Sure. So. For, for over 28 years, I was co-sponsor of the St. Louis Record Collector Shows, which are still going on. Uh, they're at the American Czechoslovakian Hall off of Kings Highway in Lansdowne. And there's, uh, they do those six times a year. And then me and a, a former partner of mine who sadly just passed away, we, we used to travel to Austin, Texas to the big international show twice a year. And that was like a five-day event each time we did that. Uh, we also started the Springfield, Missouri record shows and they're still going on even though we're not a part of them anymore. And one time we did a country western 
record collector show in Branson one time, and uh, we, we I think we picked the wrong time to do it because Branson was still really growing back then, and people were just so afraid to get off the road to come in to look. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of people drive by, but nobody would want to pull in when they saw our sign. So it, it it was an interesting thing. We met some interesting people doing that. Yeah, and you've you've met a, a lot of interesting people over the years, I'm sure, through these uh, conventions and. Uh, uh, just with the memorabilia uh, you have. So so let's take it back to, to the very beginning, if you will. Um, lifelong Highland, Illinois resident, right? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. And um, um, you you started uh, the love affair with music, and I like your tagline you have on your business card, collecting memories. There you go. Uh, and and uh, I think that's a, a beautiful tagline because that's exactly how I associate music. Uh, more than anything else, it, I, it's, it's just the memory you instantly get when you recognize a song. You know where you were Absolutely. many times, what you were wearing, who you were <laughs> with, um, uh, what you were driving, and, and, and yeah. things like that. And, and so I think that's a, a great tagline. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, they sure bring memories back. Yeah. So, so you start. Um, I assume it's in the mid fifties or something like that, where. Um, your adolescent years is really when you first start getting into music? I can pretty well pinpoint it in a way because it was at the beginning of rock and roll in a way because when Elvis came on the scene, and in 1957, American Bandstand became a daily na nationwide show. It was on five days a week for an hour and a half every day. And we ran home from school and we watched every show and we kept up on what's the, the latest uh hits coming out and the latest artists and that was a fun thing that got me going. Uh, I was probably one of the earlier ones in my crowd uh, as a boy that started dancing back in the in our junior high years. Uh, the, the group I ran around with we had siblings who were in high school and they they had teen towns and we thought well that's kind of neat. So in 1958 we started the junior high teen town up at the community center the Weinheimer building on Thursday nights for two hours a night. We did that uh, so and, and to do that, you had to bring your own records. So there we were gathering records together. Some of my my older sibling, I took some of his records, and I really didn't have much of an allowance yet to buy records. But I started buying records, and that's kind of the beginning. The influence I think was between Elvis and um, Dick Clark's American Bandstand at that time period. Yeah, fascinating. And so, so who were some of the, your your favorites back then? Um, that, that really set the fire for you, you know, like guys like Buddy Holly or, or uh, Chubby Checker and some of the, the big rock and roll beginners? Oh, sure. Well, probably uh, the television had a big influence, and one was Ricky Nelson. That was a big deal. When Ricky started singing at the end of his shows, they, he always sang a rock and roll song, and that was always neat to do. And of course, Elvis was a big influence. Uh, the strange thing about Elvis is I think I was more impressed the way he impressed the girls. I kept thinking, wow, why are, why are they always so excited about him? You know, As me, as a person, Elvis, I thought, well, he was okay and I liked his music, but I was just amazed at his charisma and how, and how he just took over things when he came out on stage. But when they flashed him up in the theater, when he went to see a movie, the girls would scream just to see his picture up on the theater. You know, It, it, was, it was fascinating. It was a fun time. The early days of rock and roll, and and uh, we did that all through high school. We had a team town on Saturday nights at the Weinheimer Building, and 
Then we started going to local dances around the area at uh, VFW halls, the American Legion halls. Uh, rock and roll was really starting to come in and there were some local bands playing and we'd go see them. And, and that really got me influenced. And uh, of course, then later on my senior year, we started our own little band. And then my second half of my senior year, uh, the radio station here in Highland went on the air. When you records went on, uh, radio went on in January of '64. And me and a friend of mine, the drummer in the band, we started a little Saturday afternoon radio show, doing uh, high school news, and we're doing. People would call in and, and request a song, and we were doing things like that on the air for for an hour every Saturday afternoon, which was really fun. Did you, did you bring your own music for for the show there? Uh, normally, yes, we did bring some of our own records. Uh, the radio station had some copies coming in, and <laughs> being a record collector, now I got tears when I think about it because I remember seeing the early Beatle promo 45s come into the radio station, and boy, are they collectible today! Because <laughs> we back then, when it, before they really hit the airways, nobody really thought anything of their records and. Especially the early promo records, nobody thought, well, they're not anything, and we, yeah. so nobody really kept them, and, and now they're very desirable. <laughs> so that's, a, that's some hindsight, yeah. yeah. I, I, I could certainly see. So did you run in, in, in any um, resistance from the adults, uh, both in your own home or, or in trying to get something done at the Weinheimer <laughs> or... or Establishing dances, did, was there rebellion or resistance from the adults? Not too much. Uh, my parents were, uh, they loved the gold polka dancing. Uh, every Saturday night they went out dancing. So they were into a little bit of the music. Uh, they didn't mind what I was doing. Uh, they didn't think anything bad against rock and roll. Uh, they never said anything bad about Elvis or nothing. In fact, my grandmother really loved Elvis to start with. Uh, and one of the one of my classmates that we ran around with, she's the one that used to take us around to different dances, and she's the one that helped us promote the start the the junior high teen town when we were in, still in seventh and eighth grade. She was behind that to get that started. So I really didn't see any resistance at all. Well, that, that's cool. How about the teen town? Did that uh, was that a success? It, it, it run. Did you get a lot of? Participation and oh, it was well. Once again, it's Highlands, a small town back then. We had the right. stu the two schools going. Yeah, there were, most of the kids our age would show up for that for that dance. It was only two hours, and then in high school, we got the teen town going when we were teenagers. Uh, we'd have a live band maybe once a month or something. A live band would come in and play. So it, it went over pretty good. You remember your band name? Well, we started out. Uh, uh, well, we call, we ended up calling ourselves the Teen Beats. Uh, there was a song out by Sandy Nelson called Teen Beat, so we used that as our theme song. Uh, and on a radio show, that was our introduction with playing the Teen Beat, so we went with the band the Teen Beat, because we were aiming at that time for the Teen Beat age, and that's what we were playing with. You didn't start Teen Beat Magazine, too, did you? <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so you're at, you're at when you and... Um, um, in, in the mid-60s, I think it was Glenn Bircher. Yes, Glenn Bircher is the one that started it. And yeah, um, I think we when I worked there later in the 90s, they probably still had the same set of songs in their, <laughs> in their stats. Uh, yeah. They had some pretty old material there. but uh, um, So you, you did the weekend gig. That had to be a lot of fun in, in, in high school. Did, well, did you do that? <laughs> Yeah, well, if you can imagine when you're a senior in high school and you have a radio show and playing a band, it, it, 
I guess I might have had a little big head once in a while. But no, we got along with everybody, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we, we did, yeah. Uh, there was, a, out the Lindendale Park, for years, there was a very popular dance on Wednesday nights. And why it ever started on Wednesday night, I don't know. But it, it was there all through my high school years. And then uh, my senior year, when we had our band going, we decided to try a Sunday night dance at the Lindendale Park. Well, we made about four weeks of it, but that didn't work too good because that was the night before school started the next week, and it it, it really didn't last too long. But we tried. <laughs> that uh, that dance um, went on for years out there. Oh, it sure did. Uh, I don't know if it's still going, but no, it, it's not now. Uh, it started, I think, in the late fifties, and it went went through. I left left in '64 for the service, and it still was going on. When I got back, it was still going on. I think it lasted to the early '70s, and then uh, later on, I think in the, about 1990, we started a Wednesday night dance reunion. Uh, we did that once a year, and all the kids that used to go to the Wednesday night yeah. dance would show up. And we, of course, we're adults and then have kids and all that. But that was a lot of fun. I got I got a kick out of talking to you the other day, and you give me some Highland history on. Um, uh, some of the things you would be doing in, in junior high and high school, going to restaurants that no longer exist here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, down, uh, uh, I found the uh, the apartment building down on Poplar uh-huh. uh, was one I had no clue of. Um, yeah, that um, was Kaufman's Restaurant. That's where we hung out. Uh, a lot of times went over there for lunch, which I don't think the schools later on would even allow the kids off the off the school grounds. But we went over there every lunchtime, and we met after school. And then we wore the jukebox out. We always had that jukebox playing there. And then uh, our junior, senior years, a, a local gentleman uh, started a, another little restaurant with a jukebox in it. It's called Dell's. He was Dell Gunther. It was located on the Bosler Curve where the Highland Dentistry Building is now. It was an old uh, chicken barn there, and we, we helped clean it up scraped the chicken junk out of it, and he opened up the restaurant there called Dell's Place. And then later he moved up on Broadway, and I think that's where Motomart is now on Broadway. Yeah. And that used to be Dell's, close to Ethel's Tavern there. Uh-huh. And we hung out there our junior and senior years. Cool, cool. I love that, that kind of history mm-hmm. uh, behind everything. So, so you're... you're Buying um, um, records, but this isn't, you weren't in the collective business uh, back then. You would just buy music like all of us did as in our right. teen years, right? Um, first record you bought, you told me this the other day, but, but share that. I got a kick out of this. It's, it's kind of strange why I do remember that, but, but we used to go shopping back in the late 50s. We went to East St. Louis, which uh, we had some cousins that lived there. And it was uh, one of the department stores downtown East St. Louis. We went in there, and, and my dad said, well, you can buy one record tonight. <laughs> so I went to the counter, and I said, uh, I'd like to buy the record uh, rock and roll music. And the lady says, well, we got all kind of rock and roll music. I said, no, I want the song rock and roll music. Well, she wasn't quite sure how I was talking about But at the time, Chuck Berry had that song out called rock and roll music. Well, she did find it for me and brought it to me, and I bought it that night. And I still remember that because she questioned me about the song title. You know. Well, that, that narrows it down to 700 songs <laughs> right. we have here, young man. Sure, sure. And, and lo and behold, um, you had no clue what a legend 
Yeah. Uh, you you purchased on that very first uh, purchase of yours. Um, yeah. Um, that he would turn out to be. And you met Chuck Berry a few times? Oh, yeah, often not. Well, we saw him appear when, uh, down there at uh, Blueberry Hill when he was there. We got to talk to him. He was he was very cordial. You could approach him and he would talk to you. And we saw him live several times. But they called the Duck Room. They named it after for him. And he he appeared down there several times. I never met him early in his career, but yeah, all right, cool, cool, cool. Uh, so so you're you're gathering records and stuff. You're working at when you and um, I want to dive into uh, uh, some things you did with your when you press pass uh, a, a little bit. So. So I had a win you press pass years later, but I never was as ambitious and rambunctious as, as uh, uh, you seem to have gotten. Um, um, so so tell the story. I think you got a couple of them uh, where, where that came to use. But um, Well, what we did, my friend and I, uh, I guess you don't mind if I say it, Scott Tibbetts, uh, we were together on the Win You show, the Team Beat show, and we had business cards made up. I wouldn't call it a press pass, I guess, but it listed our record show on it, and it said, I mean, our radio show, and the fact that we had a band. And we used to hang out up in Benelda, Illinois, at the Coliseum Ballroom, and when we were in high school, there was a lot of big rock and roll people that appeared there. In this little farm community out in the middle of nowhere, we saw all kinds of stars there. So one night, we noticed Fats Domino was going to appear there, and I told Scott, and I said, why don't we go up and try to uh, interview him? And Scott says, well, I don't know. I guess we could try. So we went up there. We had a little portable record player, uh, tape recorder, rather, and I gave uh, one of the people at the, at the hall there, I said, you think you could give this to Mr. Domino and he let us interview him? But we didn't think that anything would happen about it. Well, when they take their first break, Mr. Domino came out of the back and he said, where's those two gentlemen at? I'll be glad to talk to him. And he took us backstage and he was just a perfect gentleman. And, and uh, he very smooth with us, very nice. And we talked for about, I guess, 20 minutes or so and was able to get the, uh, the interview on our little tape recorder. And the sad part about it with that one, even back in those years as a teenager, we never had a phone with a camera. <laughs> so we didn't even get any pictures, yeah. but uh, we do have, I still have it right now yet, is the interview, I still have it on the tape, and which have now since been put it on CD, but back then you think, well, oh, well, I wish we had those phones back there, all the pictures we could have took, and, and we didn't even have a camera with us when we went there, because I don't think I owned a camera when I was in high school. Yeah. My parents had a camera, but I hardly got to use that, so... Oh, that was yeah. a little disappointing. So, so you care if we play a little bit of that? Oh, that uh, would be fine, sure. Yeah. Okay, so oh. so we're going to cue that up and uh, uh, play the uh, at least a portion of it. I'm not sure how long it goes. but, but That's uh, 10 or 15 minutes, I yeah. think, is all. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll go with the flow on that and then uh, uh, come back and talk a little bit more about it. Uh, here's a fast stamina from the bench with Dench, Jim Ryan. Hey gang, this is Jim and Scott. This is Jim along with the rest of the gang up here at the Coliseum in Benel, Illinois. As we said, we're going to have an interview with Fats Domino, and he's right here with us right now. I'd like to ask Scott, uh, Fats a few questions if I can stop stuttering. I'm a little nervous because it's a big thing for Scott and I. We'd like to thank Fats for taking time out for his uh, hectic schedule. And by the way, Fats, can you give the listeners out to no idea what it's like to be a recording artist? I know a lot of kids like to be a recording artists. Just give them an idea how many nights a week you work and all the travel. Just, just see what it's really like. Oh, right now, Jim, up to now, I left home about just about six weeks ago. And I have about five more weeks before I get back home. Five weeks? Well, that's some working, Fats. You get many nights off during the year? No, not too many. I work about 
Well, I guess you do. I thought she was fibbing me when she told me she used to sit back and listen to Fast Domino. I thought surely it couldn't be the same Fast Domino that uh, all the teenagers love today. So uh, I guess I was proven wrong again. Uh, Jim, uh, that's about all I have. Do you have anything to add? No, Scott, I'd like to thank Fast Domino for taking the time off from his schedule. I said earlier, give us this opportunity to have him on the show. I'm sure all the listeners enjoy hearing him. Um, when's the next time you'll be around to Fast? You know, well, I couldn't tear off the show, but... It may be another three or four, maybe five months, I'll get back. Three or four or five months. I remember, about, I think it was last May or uh, Junior up here, I think a collection yeah. actor up in the Coliseum. Uh-huh. So anytime you hear Fats, Tom, I'm sure pick up his records or come and see him. It's wonderful. I like to say again, thanks, Fats and Scott. You know, I say thanks to you, Jim, and thank you, Scott, and I say thanks to the people what they've done for me. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, So there you have it, Fats Domino and... Uh, uh, this was right when he had a couple big hits. Uh, well, actually, point. it was towards the end of his hit records. Uh, that was his 1964. Fats Domino was popular starting back in 56 with Blueberry Hill. And he had most of his hits through the late 50s into the early 60s. And uh, I think at the time he had just switched record labels from Imperial Records and went to ABC Paramount, which none of his records really charted much after that. But uh, he was still very popular and still did a lot of touring back then after the yeah. the main thing yeah cool stuff cool stuff uh, and so so then you uh, yeah, that was your first one right yeah. this came before the the your next one right was, uh, so we got pretty brazen after that with a wow <laughs> we might try anything uh well, what was happening though in, in uh june may of 64 uh, we graduated from high school and uh we at first thought we were going to take our band and go on the road. <laughs> well, that that was more of a joke than anything because we had one car and we had to pile all our instruments in it. And, and Denny, who our drummer was, said, I don't think our my car will go very far. So we had been telling people we're going to go out and conquer the world with our band. And we thought, well, what are we going to do? We're not leaving. So Scott and I joined the Army <laughs> just to get out of town. <laughs> but before we left, uh, the Beach Boys were going to appear down in St. Louis and I had a couple guys who wanted to take our spot on when you doing the Team Beach show. They were going to carry it on after we left. So I said to them, I said, let's try to go down to, to Keel Auditorium and let's see if we can interview the Beach Boys. So they thought I was nuts. I said, well, you never know what will happen. So we went down there and I went to the backstage door and I knocked on the door. Of course, the security guard answered and I had a little card and I handed him my card. I said, we would like to to interview the Beach Boys. See, now you got to remember, I'm only 17 years old. <laughs> and, and the two guys behind me are 16 years old, so I thought he would just brush us off. Anyway, he closed the door on us, and we're standing outside. And about four or five minutes later, the door opens, and there's Denny Wilson of the Beach Boys, the drummer. <laughs> he said, guys, come on in. And he invited us backstage. We went back into the dressing rooms. Uh, it was a, a show where there were several acts. When we were back in the dressing room, uh, there was uh, the, the Kingsmen were playing out there, and Ray Peterson and Dick and Dee Dee were on, his, on the show that night. And so we went back into the, the, the room with them, with Denny, and his brother Brian was there at the piano. There was a piano back there in the dressing room, and he was playing the piano. And Brian turned around and introduced himself, and he was very nice, and... Uh, we sat there and, and talked to them for about a half hour. Uh, we asked them various questions. And then Denny was such a nice guy, the drummer. He kind of took over the interview because he was asking questions and really a, a kind of a character he was. So then when they 
it was their turn to go on stage. They left us back there. And uh, at the time, Lynn Easton, who was the lead singer for the Kingsmen, who were touring with him at that time, and they had that big hit out, Louie Louie. So I stopped him in the hallway, and then I got to interview him, which is on that uh, CD with, with the Beach Boys. And that was very interesting. He was very nice to him. We talked about the song Louie Louie, which is really a classic rock and roll song. And uh, Then after the show, we went over across the street to a bar, and we're only 17 years old, and we went in a bar with him, and Denny and Brian bought us a drink there. We only stayed for one drink, and then we left after that. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff great stuff so we're gonna we're gonna tap into that interview too uh going back uh what is it 50 years 70 almost 60 years uh, uh short. it has 50, to be 58 yeah. 58 years 64 it's about 50, yeah, yeah, yeah. 58 yeah 58 years or so here you have uh jim ronnett Ambitious seventeen-year-old <laughs> getting the interview not only with the Beach Boys but Louie Louie's own the Kingsmen as well. So yeah. uh, uh, enjoy. Hello, hello everyone. I'm open to another exclusive interview brought to you to the TV organization. And this is Jim Rod speaking to you, place of the TV. Today we have one of the Beach Boys who's taking time out of their busy schedule to give us a few minutes. We're down here at the Kilo Auditorium in St. Louis at the Beach Boys Safari. Uh, shows are featuring the Beach Boys, of course, along with the Kingsman, Ray Peterson, and Nick, uh, uh, oh, Jim Griffin, that's right, a new, new star. Well, I get a uh, mic to stand and Bill, and you're changing some wonderful WIND Radio 1510 every Saturday afternoon, uh, you all tune them in. They'll ask the Beach Boys some questions, and I should be interested. Here you go, Bill. Thanks, Jim. And uh, now that we have Brian Wilson here, uh, I'd like to start off the uh, interview saying that we appreciate you giving your time and uh, we know that it's a busy you have a busy schedule and uh, uh, what was your first really big record that you ever made? Uh, the first record we made was uh, called Surfing which was a uh, local hit on the west coast of the United States and uh, at, shortly after that we had our first big record on Capitol Records which was called Surfing Safari which more or less broke the thing wide open, and from there we've been very fortunate and uh, had many hits after that. You know. Well, I understand asking four more questions, Brian. Uh, this is Stan. Uh, I'd like to ask Brian how many records they have out, and which one was the biggest, and which one sold the most. Well, we've had, uh, I really don't know how many records we've had out right down the record, but I know that uh, our biggest record to date, I believe, is I Get Around. And Don't Worry Baby, which are on the same record. Uh, they say that if things move right, the thing could total a million sales with both sides of the record. And this is real good news, you know, because of, and the one before that, I think it was the biggest, was uh, called Surfing USA, which uh, really did a lot for the sport of surfing, did a lot for us, and uh, created a lot of excitement in the country about the sport and everything. And, uh, you do much surfing yourself, Brian. Well, not my, I don't do much surfing, no, I know, actually, I don't even know you know how to surf, but uh, one guy in the group is a real good surfer, he's a, he's a lot better than any of us, actually, all of us put together, his name is Dennis Wilson, of course, he's a drummer, and uh, he's actually the inspiration behind this whole, uh, this whole surfing image for the Beach Boys, he uh, encouraged me to write a surfing song a couple of, two, three years ago, which started the whole thing moving, and uh, he is a real good surfer, I mean, he can surf as well as most most average guys that don't really live in Hawaii or spend their lives on the beach, you know. And he's real good. 
Well, Brian, I know uh, you and Carl and Dennis are all brothers, but how did Mike Love and Al get in the scene? Well, uh, Mike Love is our cousin, and of course he was uh, he was one of the original members. Uh, the night we all assembled to sit down and try to to uh, figure out what we could do to be a vocal group, he was right there with us. And uh, Al Jardine was there, as a matter of fact. He's not in the family, but he's a uh, He's a very close friend of mine. He went to school with me. We played football together, so and, he, and we kind of messed around with uh, folk songs and everything. And so we sort of uh, it was a natural thing that I would invite him to come over to the house, you know, sing with us. Well, uh, I just wanted to find out uh, what was your uh, biggest break you feel in the recording business? Well, actually, we've had every single uh, every week we get another big break, you know, to get another hit record, another another uh, success. But I guess the biggest break, of course, was the, the way that we accidentally bumped into someone who could could uh, get a record on the radio for us, which was a publisher named Hyde Morgan in Los Angeles, who got our first record, actually took us to the studio. We didn't know a darn thing about recording. He uh, told us what to do. We stood there and played our instruments and sang. Very crude. But uh, we came out with our first record, and it was a hit on the West Coast. This was our biggest break. The fact that we just we we crossed paths and enabled us to get into the business like this was really cool. Well, Brian, we know you've been all over the United States doing your act, and uh, I'd like to know how differently the crowds you act in the different cities. I mean, uh, like on the East Coast, it's probably a lot different reaction. Could you comment on that? Well. There, there is actually, uh, I guess we divide them up into four different major areas to appear. One is the east, and then of course the midwest, and then there's the south, and then the west coast. And uh, I think that the greatest reaction so far to our on appearance on stage has been in certain areas of northern California. But uh, really, that isn't really that much greater than places like Dallas, Texas, or uh, Tucson, Arizona. And then, uh, of course, in Omaha, Nebraska, it was raining one night for three hours. The kids stayed out in the stadium in the rain to watch it. So that we've had a lot of very loyal fans. And uh, we've been uh, traveling on a tour now for about 12 days, which started in Tucson, Arizona and went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, Amarillo, Texas, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and Omaha, Nebraska, then to uh, somewhere, in, I can't remember, there's a couple of places after that, and then, uh, finally right here in St. Louis, which uh, is great. The city, this is probably just as pretty as any city we've ever seen, you know, on the tour. But uh, we just finished our first show here, and it was great, the kids are great here. And uh, in about another 25, 30 minutes, we'll be going on for our second show. Yes, I know you were great. You can see the kids even dancing in the halls and everything. They were really swinging. One last question, though, Brian. Uh, what are your new records? Could you give us an idea on what the new records are going to be that you have, what the names are, and besides your album all summer long? Well, in a single category, we have a new single recording coming out, which is called, uh, one side is called She Knows Me, and then we're not really positive about the other side of the record. We think it might possibly come off our All Summer Long album, and there's a chance it could be Wendy or uh, Drive In or Don't Back Down or one of those. But uh, we'll just have to wait and see, you know, what kind of reaction they get, and then we'll be able to decide. 
but as far as singles or anything beyond that, uh, I really don't like to try to plan too far ahead of just one record because uh, cha uh, everything changes, you know, in a one month everything could be completely changed in this industry. It's, it's good to play it by ear and from record to record. And, uh, gee, that's about all I can say about a record. Well, thank you very much for the interview, Brian, and uh, I know Stan and myself and Jim also appreciate it very much, and uh, we hope, we wish to give you the best luck in the future. And Hey, this is Jim once again at the TV show. I'd like to thank Brian Wilson. He's a very busy man, and thank, thank you for taking time off his schedule and talking to the team beats. As when he's up there talking to him, a man came and said there's a mob of girls downstairs waiting for autographs, and that's where Brian's at right now, probably signing autographs. We're backstage right now, Stan, Bill, and myself. We're waiting for the Kingsmen who are on stage right now. You can probably hear their music. They're playing their new release. I think it's Little Lat Loop the Loo. You might be able to hear it in the background. What well, was a great show, Stan, Bill. What do you think about it, Stan? Well, it was a great show, and uh, you could tell the whole audience liked it because there was girls and boys alike dancing all over the place, and it was a real swinging show. I liked it a lot. Well, I thought it was, I thought it was just great. I mean, they all played very good songs. The Beach Boys came through with a great one. Papa Umama was famous by the, it was made famous by the Rivingtons, and it was just terrific. No kidding. Everybody just went wild when they played it. And they, uh, they did an extra number for everybody, and it was just wild. Well, here's Jim again. Well, I kind of make a confession, I guess, a public confession. I never really cared for the Beach Boys, but now we came down and see them in person, they really did turn on. The kids are really wild, as Stan and Bill both said. And their songs sound terrific live. In this new release, they were talking about they played that, and I think it's going to go places. I think the Beach Boys will be around for a long, long time, and they're right up there above the Beatles. They're one of the best American recording groups there is. But we're still behind the stage. I think it sounds like the Kingsman might be done. We'll be talking to Lynn Easton, that's the lead singer for the Kingsman. We had money, money, and I should say really, really money. I'm getting a little mixed up back here. You anything else you want to put in the stand? And Bill, all right, well, hang, hang on, well, do about five minutes and the king will be here. All right, gang, this is Jim Lutz for the TV show, wonderful WNU Radio. We're backstage at the Kill Auditorium. We have Lynn, Lynn Easton, the lead singer and the leader of the Kingsman. I've met, well, I've seen Lynn perform in New York at the Peppermint Lounge. It was informative. I thought you were great. Now we get to see him live here. Well, what's backstage? We'll have Bill and Stan here. They're going to interview you, man. All right, Bill, go right ahead. Thank you, Jim. Well, Lynn, I'd like to ask you for your first question. What is, or what was your biggest record so far of all the ones that you've made? And what was your first record that you ever put out? Well, of course, I can answer both those questions with one thing, and that was Louie Louie. It was uh, kind of a sudden thing. It went all the way up to the top and stayed there for a while. It was very kind to us, and we'd like to thank the people for it, because they were the ones that did it for us. Well, Lynn, uh, I'd like to ask you uh, how the group got together and how long you've been together as the Kingsmen. Well, uh, my lead guitar player and I, Mike Mitchell, have been together for seven years now, and the other fellows have just come along. We've uh, worked basically in the Northwest, that's uh, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Northern California. We've had them working Team Club. Our album, Louie Louie, the Kingsman in person, was cut in a Team Club called uh, The Chase, I believe it is, in Oregon, Portland. And uh, we worked Team Clubs, and we worked, uh, <coughs> excuse me, hops, concerts, just about every angle of the business. And uh, I must say, concerts are the ones we like the best because we work 45 minutes and then we get to go back in the dressing room and talk to people, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'd like to ask you uh, where you originated from and uh, uh, where you, what your plans are for the future. If you have any new records coming out or anything like that. We originated from Portland. All of the fellows are from Portland. Well, our organist, Barry Curtis, is from Yakima, Washington, which is just a little north. Our drummer, Dick Peterson, and our bass player, Norm Sunholm, are all from Portland. 
some of us went to school together, some of us just uh, met through our musical associations. And uh, as for future things, of course, the one thing we hope and wish for is uh, to get more records on the tops of the charts and hope that we keep uh, pleasing the people and they enjoy our records. Uh, as far as things coming out in the future, we just spent about uh, six days in studios in New York and Seattle and cut about 36 different sides. So we should have enough for an album or two, possibly. And uh, I think we cut some things that the people might enjoy for a possible new singles. Right now, I can't mention the names because, of course, we aren't sure of it. But the minute we're sure, they'll be out on the market and we hope the people will enjoy it. Well, then, uh, we asked Brian Wilson in the, in the interview previous to this how the crowds reacted in different parts of the United States. And uh, I know they've worked different places than you have, and I'd like to have your opinion of this. Well, the different reactions we get. When we're down south, they say, y'all was pretty good. And when we're up in New York, they say, you guys was good. And uh, all in all, the people have been great to us. I'll tell you, if it wasn't for the reception and the way people are to us, as kind as they are, this business wouldn't be worth it because life is too short. Uh, and many people think that this business and being on the road is a ball and it's a lot of fun, which it is, but one that wouldn't be done. But there's an awful lot of physical labor involved in uh, getting set up and tearing down and just doing the show. And the people that you meet make it all worthwhile and worth your time, and that's the fun that I can myself, and I'm sure my boys do too. Thank you, man. Well, I'd just like to ask you if uh, you really, I know you really enjoy your, your work and uh, everything, and where will you be going next, you know? Do you mean next like tomorrow night or next like the next couple months or what? Well, like next within the, the near future, let's say in the next week, or where will you leave here from St. Louis? Louisville, Kentucky tomorrow night, and then on around the Midwest circuit, back home, and we'll doing, be doing an 18-day tour of the Northwest, our old stopping ground. And then it looks like we're going to take about six, week, six weeks off, and everybody's going to attempt to get back to a regular schedule where it's sleeping and eating, you know and uh, getting out in the sunshine and this type of thing, out of a Greyhound bus and into a car for a change. And uh, then it looks like we'll be off to Japan in October. We'll be in Japan for about four weeks just for the Olympics and then we're all looking forward to that and practicing with our chopsticks and really uh, trying to, you know, have a good thing going there. Well, I don't have much to add. I don't feel like Jim does. Well, Mr. Jim wants to get a TV show. I guess to wind up, we'd like to show appreciation to Lynn East and other Kingsmen for taking time out from this busy, busy tour. You know, it's all been a busy rush behind the stage back here. <laughs> well, that'll be all. Thanks, everybody, listening. I hope you've enjoyed the interviews. We'll have more in the future. This is the TV signing off once again. Thank you. Mr. Jim wants more than the TV show. We have an extra attraction out here to kill. We met Dennis Wilson as he's leaving after we wound up our previous interviews. And Dennis is nice enough to take up a few minutes before he goes on for his second show and talk to us. This will be very informal. We'll talk, we'll say, we'll talk about out in California about surfing. I think Dennis is supposed to be on the surface. When's the last time you were on a boat, Dennis? Last time I was on a surfboard was in Australia. It was near Bean Beach. It's about uh, four and a half months ago. It's quite an exciting thing. You know, they, they, never, they don't have too many American surfers over there, especially entertainers in a surfing group. So I tooled on out to the beach, and all of a sudden, while I was out in the water, I looked out, and there was all the newsreel, you know? It was quite an exciting thing. And it ended up to be just a big contest between the safaris and the beach boys on the boards. The safaris are in the United States, too. They, yeah, that's right. And they wiped out on the boards. I won the surfing contest, luckily. They were, well, they kind of green on the boards, yet they were young. 
I've been searching for about four years. It's not, not too long, really. Uh, hey, you know, why don't you tell me a little bit about your radio station? That would be quite a change on a, on a little recording, wouldn't it now? So why don't you explain to me? Yeah, I'll interview you. Now, you, you, you give me the call out to your radio station. See, did you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? Boy. No, it's, it's one of the better radio stations in town, is it? A lot of listeners now, I hope. I hope a lot of people are listening. You know, I'm almost on. Uh, Ray Peterson is singing Lucille right now, and I go on in about three and a half minutes we've got, boys, to talk on the microphone, and I don't know what to talk about. Our first song will be Fun, Fun, Fun. Now, I'll probably miss the drum beat, but it will still be Fun, Fun, Fun. I like your... Gregory, Papa Umau. Papa Umau. We were in Australia. They, they made a live recording of that, and they wanted to put it out as a single. They just ran, they, they ran, they ran the tape in Australia all the time. Uh, yes, we're going to England, but first, this October, we're going to Japan. I know that you have a really haircut already. Well, this is, now, my haircut, they, people call it a beetle haircut. But a beetle haircut is cut to look like a beetle. Mine is ordinary hair, not cut. It's just cut, Denny style. I've worn my hair like this for over six years. And I comb it when they take photographs. When I'm on stage, I don't comb it. So, you know, it's, it's quite an, when I like if I walk into a store or something, they say, oh, look at the beetle, you know. And it, but it's really not, it's the beach boy. <laughs> that sounds conceited. Really, I'm not conceited too bad. <laughs> Oh, that's all. No, don't, don't. Oh, this should be right around here. I hope, I, but I do hope everybody out there listening right now, you know, we're going to listen to all our records and buy them because we appreciate, you know, everybody listening to our records. Elvis is a wonderful guy. I know Elvis personally. He's a wonderful person. Elvis Presley is a nice guy. He's kind of wealthy too. He's got. A, I've been to a few parties at his house in Bel Air. I don't live too far away from him. I live up in the hills in Beverly too. He lives right out of Brentwood. That's all in the Hollywood district. It's a nice. A lot of people up there. I like that song too. My brother Brian wrote that one. Um, Brian writes about three fourths of the songs. I, we all chip in, you know, lyrics-wise, but he usually comes up with some good melodies. We, well, let's see. We Surf City for Jen and Dean. We wrote that. Drag City. My brother wrote that. Stuff like that, you know. I like the It's a different style. It's a hard style to reproduce. I'll tell you. Uh, you don't really have to have a little style, you have to be commercial, it's very important, and you have to, well, yeah, uh, being commercial is, is, is being able to not, like, bring yourself down to the public, but make it easier for the, the kids and their, your audience and your public to, to understand what you're singing about, to, what we try to get across is we try to get across to be more human, like, more like real people and real things that really happen. Sing about our favorite things like sports, like say surfing or, or drag racing, because we all like to surf and we all like to drag race. And matter of fact, I hold the California championship in the Corvette Stingray class. 
Well, I, I drove a, a Corvette Stingray, 1963. You know, it was it took the California Championship. It did 115 in 12 seconds flat. That was the record. And now I drive an XKE Jaguar with a special ordered engine from London. Did 182 miles an hour in the rolling mile at the Salt Flats in Utah. No, my car was the first. The vet was was Pro Essence candy blue with leather interior. Uh oh, and I just got the word that I have to go on. And then my XKE is jet black with black interior. And that, so, gentlemen, I'm going to have to run. And thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Thank you a lot. Very nice to meet you. All right. Watch the I'm sorry about the phone. All right, that was a private joke, ladies and gentlemen. It was Dennis Wilson of the Beach Brothers back to do his second show here with Killer the Turn. And many, many thanks to Dennis. And that was a very, very important interview, as he stated once before. Well, this will be Jim along with Bill and Stan. You got any words you want to wrap the show up or anything to say? No, I just thought the show was real great, and I'm sure Stan will go along with me. Uh, and uh, so thanks a lot and to Dennis and Brian and also uh, Lenny Easton of the Kingsman. And uh, that wraps it up, I think. Now, there you have it, Beach Boys and the Kingsman. And um, um, why is Dennis apologizing about the girl there at the end of the interview there, Jim? Well, it's a little embarrassing in the way. Uh, I tried to impress a, a girl that, that I was wanting to date. Uh, she used to live in Highland, and she moved to O'Fallon. And I called her up, and I said, we're going to go down to see the Beach Boys. And I said, would you like to go along? It, it wasn't an official date, I guess, but she was tickled. Hey, I'll go with you to see the Beach Boys. I kind of was, oh, this might be my way in here. So she went with me, and she was... A beautiful girl, to say the least. So when we're backstage talking, Denny Wilson ran into her, the drummer of the Beach Boys, and of course, he's a character, uh, not bashful at all. So I, I wasn't aware of it, but uh, he'd been talking to Lynn quite a bit while I was talking to Denny and talking to the the, uh, the uh, Kingsman, Lynn Easton. So later on, uh, after the intermission, we went back and talked a little bit more and, and Denny's kind of doing the interview again. And as he's leaving the room, you can hear at the end of the interview, he says, uh, oh, by the way, I'm sorry about the blonde. <laughs> what he had done is made an arrangement to take my girl, my date, to a party after the show. <laughs> and uh, she agreed, which I, I really can't blame her. I mean, what's the chances of ever running into a Beach Boys in a you know, from our hometown and all that. And, and I was so impressed with the Beach Boys, I, I really didn't care that much at yeah. the time because uh, I was just in shock that we got the interview to start with anyway. But she actually did leave with him, but then years later I got to talk with her. I didn't see her for several years. And when I finally ran into her and talked to her again, she says, I got so scared, I got in my car and went home. <laughs> says, this was more than just a party. Yeah. And she says, I did not stick around with him. Well, so. um, you know, three years later, he's hanging out with Charlie Manson. So exactly. <laughs> Maybe she made the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Great stuff. Great stuff. But uh, uh, that kind of, kind of the, that puts the era in perspective pre-collection. There right? you go. Okay. Uh, you, yes. you have, you have a, a few records, but you, 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 um, you, Gave them away actually when you, you when, joined when, the army, right? When I joined the army, I gave them to the neighbor. Yeah, and so so you go in the um, you you get in the right line on the army, and you go to Korea and not Vietnam, right? And, uh, <laughs> so, was, yep. 
So, uh, uh, and you, you do two years over there? Well, I spent three years in the Army, but it was right before uh, the Tet Offensive. Just when we got out of the service, the Tet Offensive happened, and that's when Vietnam really got nasty. Uh, I spent 14 months for for overseas tour. I went to Korea for 14 months. Before that, I went to school in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Then after Korea, I spent 10 months down at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. Oh, I love that place. So it was great. That's yeah. great. Du- I had great duty. So I, I didn't have anything bad to say about the Army. They treated me good. Yeah, we took, we took a vacation to White Sands. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, when I was stationed in Texas, um, they had a... a Holloman Air Force Base was right there by it, and um, um, they had some base housing there that you could go there and and visit. And so, so yeah, we went up in the sand dunes and stuff, and um, uh, up in the Rio Dosa and uh, the mountains up there. So yeah, we love White Sands, and uh, um, so it's cool you were stationed there. It triggered uh, uh, some good memories for me. Well, I get one. I have one special memory there. That's where I got married. Oh, is that right? Yeah, the last couple of months. Uh, well, my, my wife is from Piron, Illinois. She's a local girl. And we got married down there at the, at the base at White Sands Missile Range. And I was just telling Denny, uh, 50 years, our anniversary, on our 50th year anniversary, we decided to go back to White Sands Missile Range and see if we could even see anything down there anymore. So we, when we got to the base, uh, they weren't going to let us on because it was pretty well uh, top secret base by then. Uh, there was just a few military, but most of it were scientists that were working there at that time. But I took our marriage certificate with us and some pictures. So of, is this at uh, Alamogordo? Uh, it, it's oh. uh, the closest city was Los, uh, Los Cruces, New Mexico. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a, about 20 miles from Las Cruces, okay. which is another maybe 40 miles from El Paso, Texas. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we had to wait, and uh, we gave the security guards a, a picture of our uh marriage certificate and some pictures and uh, he he searched our car pretty thorough and he said well let me call some people and see what I can do and he went and checked and he says yeah everything checks out and he says we even got a hold of the church and they they have you listed (laughs) so they did let us on the base and we went to the church where we got married at and when we pulled into the parking lot we we were stunned because it was the same church nothing had changed in 50 (laughs) years and we just couldn't get over it we had a picture of the wedding party standing outside the doors of the church, and then we compared it to the doors there. It's the same doors. And then we took a picture of ourselves 50 years later standing in front of it. And while we were doing that, the chaplain came out, and he asked us what we're doing, and we explained everything to him. And he said, well, come on in and look inside the church. And this one, this, this is what really stunned my wife and I. We walked into this church, and 50 years later, nothing's different. Everything looked the same, the pews and the... And the stage and everything. And we showed pictures of it to the chaplain there, and he said, oh, goodness, 50 years and we haven't changed anything here? He couldn't get over it either. He said, it must be time for a makeover or something. And he said, but it, it was really fascinating after 50 years. It pretty well was all the same. Oh, that, that's great. Yeah. That's great stuff right there. That's great stuff. So so you you end up your, you know, wrap up your Army career there. Right. Um, and... and uh, White Sands, and come back to Highland? Yes, I did. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, so so at what point then, when you come back, um, do you start scratching that itch of records again? Well, it, it kind of happened accidentally. Uh, I was going to, started going to college on the, over at SIU at Edwardsville on the GI Bill, 
and I was working part-time different jobs, and I had a, a, a job over in East St. Louis at Consumer Loans uh, on 9th Avenue, I think it is, or 9th Street over there, and right next to the the loan company was a, uh, I guess you'd call it a dime store or a dry goods store, and they sold a little bit of everything. But what they had at the checkout counter was these wire racks, and they were had little boxes with 45s in them, and it, and it said, hits you forgot to buy, or else songs of yesterday, and it was like five records for a dollar, five or something, you could buy five records. So I bought a couple just for, for the kicks of it, and I took it home, and I started thinking, oh, this is neat. These are all the songs I remember from school. So I I think I'll start buying some of these again. So that's kind of the seed that got planted accidentally there that I started buying records from that from that store. And then a couple of years later, I got a job over in St. Louis for Mid-America Printing on Duncan Avenue, which is just a block off of, of uh, Forest Park. And on Forest Park, is the, back then in the early 70s, was where... Uh, the Goodwill store and the Salvation Army store had their big stores. And you'd go in there, and they had a corner that was just stacked with records. 45s, albums, 78s. Uh, they were selling them for, uh, oh, 10 cents for a 45 and a quarter for an album. And that got me hooked going through them. And I would spend, after work, I'd spend an hour or two going through all the records. And lunchtime, I'd run over there, and I'd be sitting in the pile of records going through them. And that started building my collection up slowly but surely. And then one night, in a, one day rather, in the basement of the Salvation Army store, I was digging through records, and there's another gentleman next to me doing the same thing. And, and we started the conversation together. And then with a good friend, he became a good friend. In fact, he became a lifetime friend for 40-some years in the record collecting. From then on, we got to get to trade in each other, and we met other collectors. And then... The field of record collecting started taking off all over the country. There's, there was a monthly magazines, Goldmine magazine, Discoveries magazine. Uh, of course, the internet was coming around, and that was putting everybody into it. And record shows started up uh, around the country. And then Carl and I decided to start a St. Louis record show up. Actually, he started the show up a couple times, a couple, oh, six months before I really got into the record show with him. And then we did that together for 20-some years, or 28 years, I'm pretty sure it was. And in fact, the show is still going on. But from then, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. It's not something that you plan on doing. And not that I wanted to have all this, and I wanted all that. It just slowly started coming in. So so you, um, just like, and I can, I can totally relate to this. I, I, I love going through, you know, the secondhand stores and mm -hmm. have, the, have the albums and everything, just to flip through and... Uh, um, really more to trigger a memory for me and like uh, okay maybe I'll pick something up here, here and there but but uh, at some point you transition from a buyer to a collector right yes and, and uh, I know you say it just happened but but one of the things when did you set a goal you you've got this beautiful book of bill billboards um, top, 100. top 100 over the years uh, from yeah. the time Billboard started doing it until they quit printing 45s. Right, in the late 90s. Uh, yeah. And uh, you made it a goal, or or that was somewhat your formula for what you would seek yeah. to buy as a, a song that made an appearance in that book. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. Uh, uh, like I, I always consider myself a 45 collector because that's what we bought even going back to the school days. 
and that's when all the hit songs you heard on the radio, that's how you purchased them. Basically, you bought the 45. Or when you went into a restaurant, you played the jukebox and played the 45 on the jukebox. So as I'm more and more getting into the records, I'm deciding, well, I'd like to maybe get all the records that charted. And of course, you start out with maybe the, the ones that made the top 20, and then I went to the top 40. And then Billboard Magazine, which is a publication, had the monthly record collector magazine. They put out some hardback books, and one of them was listing all the 45s that charted in the top 100 from 1950 up into present time. <clears throat> Uh, all, well, that actually, actually, it was a singles book. But of course, the first 40-some years was all 45s. And then later on, they became CD singles, and sometimes it was cuts off of an album. Get this Billboard Hot 100 now. Is the book... Billboard comes out weekly with their charts, don't they? Yeah, they did weekly, yes. Did they on the 100, too? Yes. Okay, uh, yeah. so... so um, that... The Billboard magazine... Uh, it was it was for the entertainment uh, field, especially for ended up being mostly for the jukebox distributors. So they knew what the hot records were that put on the jukeboxes across the country. So they published this fifties, uh, sixties, and seventies. It was the top one hundred pop records, which is rock and roll and and other and Frank Sinatra that kind of stuff. If he charted, then he also had a country western chart, and then he also later on had an R and B chart, rhythm and blues chart. Uh, so those three charts were printed weekly, and then any record that made their top 100 would get printed in there. And then after a while, they decided to put a hardback book out with all the listings of the charts in the book. And that kind of became my Bible of what to look for. And now, I also had my favorite artists, which I collected any record that they had, like going back to Elvis and Ricky and Connie Francis and Brenda Lee. I loved all of them. So any, any 45 I could find on them, I would buy it. And then that slowly got me into the albums. Every once in a while I'd buy an album by Brenda Lee or Elvis. And, and then as the hobby developed and the record show developed, then it became almost like collecting records and, I mean, coins and comic books. There's all kind of issues on records, certain times when they came out, certain label con confrontations on the labels. Uh, then condition was everything. You tried to find a record as, as close as unplayed condition as you can get it. And there are a lot of unplayed records out there because I always tell people if a record sold a million copies, they had to distribute probably a, a million and a quarter across the country to get a million sales out of them. So there was always a leftover group of records after a, a song left the charts. And a lot of times they ended up in what they called cutout bins or they went back into jukebox warehouses, which they set on shelves for years. And then as the collectors started coming around and digging into these jukebox places, they were finding mint unplayed records by Elvis and all that. So they were out there, unplayed records, or could be found, just like finding an uncirculated coin or something. Can you tell, um, and this is my naivety in... in, in record collecting, right? I'm, I'm not a collector by any stretch. Uh, can you tell an unused record oh, if sure. one hasn't been played by, by looking at it or by the packaging? Uh, as far as 45s, 
you you can tell if, as long as you've been if I've been into the seeing records, you can tell a record when it's not been played. They almost glisten. They just sparkle at you. They're, they're really it's like a work of art. What I look at it, yeah. this is like finding a diamond. You know, it's sparkling. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's you can't see a scuff or a scratch anywhere on them, I and the labels are perfect. There's no writing on the covers or the label or anything. It's and there's even sealed albums. I still find it today of records from the 50s and 60s on LPs that are sealed, never been opened. That does happen now and then. Yeah. So so of, of what you got in there, one out of 10 in mint condition, one out of 100, but, but more? My less. condition is probably closer to about 80% of my stuff is real close to being mint condition. <clears throat> There's wow. some, some yeah. are really stubborn that uh, some of the I mean, rhythm and blues stuff from the 50s are hard to find in good condition. Uh, but as you dig and dig, as I've been doing this for over about 50 years now, Denny, so I kind of know where to go and what to look for. And they're, they're out there. You know, I go to flea markets and estate sales and garage sales, secondhand stores. And I have ads and papers where people will call me with their personal collection. And a lot of times in the personal collection, back in the 50s and 60s, record clubs were a big deal. You belong to a record club and uh, once a month they'd send you this notice that if uh, this you're going to get this record unless you want a different record. And what happened a lot of times in over those years, people forgot to send the card back in and they got records they didn't want. And a lot of those records... <laughs> I'm raising my hand. There you go. Yep. <laughs> so those records ended up in the, in the closet and sat there for years unplayed. And later on, somebody else thought, well, that's a great record. You know, I, well, I want that. But at the time, that person who bought that record, this is, well, this is not the one I wanted. I just want to get this. So that happened quite a bit over the years. That uh, personal collections that sometimes for birthday presents they got records from family members that they didn't really want. They throw it in a box and forget about it. And, and then years later, oh look at this! There's one in the box that nobody played. That that does happen. All right, all right, great stuff. Yeah, yeah. I we we used to belong to those uh, record. Uh, clubs on like Columbia House or BG right. um, mm-hmm. were, were notorious. Um, and, uh, sometimes that became our biggest bill we had to pay pay that month because you had to buy the eleven by the end of the year and uh, we right. hadn't bought any. So like, yeah. well, you just bought yeah. this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd suck it up and uh, buy seven or eight at once. <laughs> uh, what a racket they had! Nice. So that concludes part one of our interview with Jim Ron. We'll have Jim back uh, as many times as uh, uh, we can, and and he can keep talking about this fantastic uh, uh, record collection business he's in. And uh, uh, the stories were just uh, incredible. Hope you enjoyed that, and uh, we'll dive in a little more to him. Thanks for joining From the Bench with Dench.